Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so thrilled today to have Hannah Studley on now, again, we don't really talk about this. She did happen to have won an Academy Award for her special effects work. She has recently come out with the amazing, amazing book, The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. But she has like really one of the craziest stories you can imagine, having gone through three very violent attacks early in her life. Um, she is someone who has spent the rest of her adult career dealing with learning about trauma, about quieting the voices in your head. How do you see your life in a way that you're not a victim? How do you break through fear? How do you quiet your thoughts? She is really an unbelievably insightful individual. We speak about profoundly deep and fundamental issues about mental health, about self-esteem, about how we see ourselves, about how we should go through our lives. And you you, got to get a pen and paper to write this stuff down. This is very, very deep stuff. I'm thrilled again. Thank you so much, Hannah, for joining me. And with no further ado, I invite you to enjoy today's show. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. Congratulations on your new book. It's very exciting. The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. Thank you. So I, you, you speak about your bio, about how you suffered these tremendous attacks when you were younger. Can you give us a little bit about your, your backstory and what happened and how you got to writing the book you did today? Sure. Um, I grew up in England and I was in college at Manchester University and I was just leading the life of a student and uh, um, a lot of music and concerts. And I was at a concert where a young man who I never knew he wanted to dance with me and put his hands where he shouldn't. So when I told him to back off, uh, the last thing I remember is his hand on the back of my head and he smashed my head down into a concrete pillar and fractured my skull here. Um, I know you can't see a lump, but I'm, I'm aware of it. You know, if you try and put up a picture on a wall and it sounds different, well, it's, yeah. it's kind of right there, <laughs> like where it healed. Um, that's, that's where he fractured my skull. And, um, and I recovered from that one pretty well. It was just like everybody thought I'd fallen over and, and you know, they didn't really make a big deal out of it. Um, and then about three years later, two or three years later, I, was, I had just moved house and I was walking back to my old apartment to pick up some things from a friend. It was about six o'clock in the evening. So in February in Manchester, it was already dark and three men came from behind me and jumped me and pulled me to the ground and beat the living daylights out of me. And I would say they left me for dead, but it, I thought I was going to die. I mean, I was really screaming for my life and, um, and, and I could feel the air running out of my lungs. It was terrifying. And I thought if they have a knife, I'm going to die. If I can't breathe, I'm going to die. And they ran off and left me. Um, and after that one, I got pretty, um, it was about 1984. So it was about when PTSD was going into the DSM when it was just becoming a diagnosis. But in, in Manchester in the 1980s, nobody was talking about PTSD or even therapy or anything. So I just kind of suffered at home and got pretty sick and pretty strange and struggled really badly with that. I was terrified to go out. I, um, every time I would go near the front door, this voice in my head would say, last time you left the house, they almost killed you. And you know, that thought would relive itself and relive itself. And I got, um, I couldn't sleep and I couldn't eat and, and it got pretty bad. 
So, um, so I, I write about this in the book. The book is, is not an autobiography, but I use a lot of these stories in the book. And so I came to this realization that Manchester was clearly the problem and I should move to London. So, so that was my big insight. And so I moved down to London and about two years later, I was mugged again, this time by um, a 16 year old boy who threw a bicycle at me as I was riding home from, I was working in the theater at the time and it was about 10 o'clock at night and he threw So the impact hit me in the neck and shoulders. I fell into the path of oncoming traffic. Thank God I wasn't run over. But I found out two years later that he'd actually broken my neck. The C2 and C3 bones were cracked through. And I found out because um, I became temporarily paralyzed. Um, So after that third event, I had all the evidence to go nuts because clearly the world was out to get me. You know, I don't know that I believed in God at the time, but there was clearly something out there that was um, after me, it felt like. And I I got convinced that if I just went out my front door, then a bus was going to run me over. I mean, I was the innocent victim and and I I was going to die if I left my house. And that's how crazy my thinking got. And and like I said, I had evidence for it. I had the x-rays and and the police reports for it. So, you know, you couldn't blame me for going crazy. And um, and that's how bad it got. It got pretty dark at that point. So then there was some kind of a moment where you were able to break out of that, that cycle that then right. launched your, your lifetime passion of helping other people get through trauma and PTSD. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that breakthrough. Yeah, I mean, thank God. Um, I think what happened, um, I, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, but I think the women watching will probably have had this experience where you use a hairdryer and it gets too hot and it just cuts out, right? <laughs> and, um, like it, and I think that's what happened with my brain. My brain was got so hot with the overthinking and thinking it over and over again. It was like that um, loop that I, and it just, I couldn't get off the gerbil wheel. And, and it was almost like it suddenly cut out. It was like there was so much noise in my head. Imagine if you had the record player and the CD and the iPod and everything on all at the same time. And then it was a power cut and it just went quiet. And it was really kind of a bit scary, <laughs> a bit spooky. And, um, and I, I just, it just went quiet. And I, what, it's very what, hard to explain. What, what caused that? Was there, a, were you at somewhere specific? Were you in a certain state of mind? Was there? Um, I was at home on my own. I mean, like I said, I wasn't really going out. Um, I, I lived on my own and um, I was, I remember being in my bedroom, glued to the bedroom wall with fear. Like it was as if my world had shrunk to about two feet around me. I could not move. And then it just like, like, a fuse blew. It was just the weirdest thing. And it just went quiet. And it wasn't like a comforting thing. It was a, it was very strange. And, and then I, I had a thought that I should ask for help. And you'd think I would have gone for help before this, because I think looking back, I had trained as a counselor with a, um, a women's crisis center in Manchester. And I think there was maybe a story in the back of my head because I trained as a counselor, I shouldn't need to ask for help. I should be able to cope. I think that's probably what was going on. And then I realized, no, you need help. And I went to a place in London, a, a women's uh, crisis center in North London. And that, like I describe in the book, um, the mentor that I met there, she said, you've been thinking about yourself for too long and you need to think about other people. And they were starting a training program. And so I joined that program and she, you know, she just took me under a wing and became a, a mentor for, and I'm still in touch with her 30 years later. It's, it's quite, it's a, a huge blessing in my life. 
And, um, and so from there, I started um, working again. Um, and so since then, I've had almost two careers. One has been the counseling, the coaching career. And then I started working in the theater, which led to TV and then movies. So I've had this career in the entertainment business, um, you know, for, for about 20 years or so. And then so. When, did the, when did the Jewish thing become a much more, you know, pronounced part of your life? How did that happen? So um, the movie career took me to Los Angeles. And um, so I lived in LA. I lived on Venice Beach nice. for, about, <laughs> for about 16 years. And um, I, I mean, you live in LA. I, I think a lot of people come to LA searching for something, you know, it's, it's that kind of place. And most people are coming to become famous or marry someone famous, you know, like be a fame by association, however it works, thinking that that's going to fix it. And I don't know that I was doing that because my career had already taken off. Thank God I'd already done a movie. Um, my first movie was uh, the first Flintstones movie. I, I did animatronics. Um, I worked for Jim Henson's Creature Shop. Wow. You know, um, Kermit and Miss Piggy. And, and I actually made the the puppets, um, the talking puppets in the movies. <laughs> so, um, so I'm in LA and I'm, 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 you know, my career's going well. Um, the second movie, we got an Academy Award for our work, which was amazing. And, but there was something missing inside. You know, I, I had, I was doing well on the outside, the material things, you know, the career was going great, but something was def def definitely missing inside. So I had a, um, uh, a friend who said to me, we live in Southern California, there's got to be something here for you, right? So we kind of went shopping, went to the self-realization center and we went, you know, to yoga and we went walking on the beach and tried all the different things. And, um, and a friend of mine was, um, his son was in a recovery house um, called Beta Shuva on um, Venice Boulevard. Sure. And he said to me, I'm going Friday night, do you want to come? And I'm like, eh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to reform, I tried a reform temple at that point. I felt comfortable in a reform temple. And um and so, cause I, I didn't grow up with anything really. And um, so I went with him this Friday night and I, I don't know how to explain it. It just like, just hearing the Hebrew and, and the singing and, and there was so, I mean, it was, it was chaos, you know, cause I'm never sure if it was a recovery center in a synagogue or it's a synagogue in a recovery center. I, I don't know, um, but it was pretty chaotic, but I just kind of got that feeling of community and, and warmth. And I thought, you know, maybe this is where I should be. And so I, I went to the, on, on Venice beach where I was living, there's a shul on the beach. So I walked in there um, and uh, a lovely lady called, her name is Elisa Weiss at the time. She's now Elisa Rubenstein. She's married to YY Rubenstein. I think you sure, had him. Of course, yeah, yeah. Right, so Elisa was, um, she was single then. And um, so I walked in and she was the first from woman I ever met. And luckily I'd walked into the women's section. <laughs> and, um, and after the, after show, she said to me, what are you doing for lunch? And I thought, what do you care? <laughs> you know, like, strange question. And she said, well, I've, I'm having some friends over. Why don't you come for lunch? And I was like, okay. And uh, she actually worked for um, the JLE, which is uh, you know, a key room organization in, um, in LA. And she just took me under her wing and introduced me to Rabbi Chapnik, who you know, runs the uh, JLE, who's an incredibly wonderful kind soul and um, still is. And uh, so I just started going to all their classes. And I think, um, I think about two weeks later, Rabbi Kellerman was doing a Shabbaton for them. And Elisa, of course, was organizing it. So she's like, do this, go here, be there. And, and I got, you know, Rabbi Kellerman was one of the first, you know, rabbis I got to hear his whole story. And <clears throat> I actually ended up being in a Musavad with him for 10 years. 
So um, that was a, a great experience. So um, that was kind of the beginning of my journey. And at that point, I'm still working in movies and, and uh, you know, going to Shul and it kind of progressed from there. That's amazing. So um, in, in terms of the work that you do, do you see Judaism connecting to this idea of, of getting through trauma and sort of distancing yourself from PTSD? I, I, there's, there's a bunch of different directions I'd love to go. One question is, you know, how does a person get their mind to quiet down? And, and the second question is, do you feel that a person could access or enhance that through spiritual practice or Judaism, or is it better to leave different spheres apart? Um, I think it's different for different people. Um, but to, to take the idea of, of the thinking, um, this is what's really important to me and a message I, I really um, want to give and, and I work with, with the people I work with is that I don't, personally, I don't believe it's possible to um, control your thinking. You know, you can never do try, <laughs> um, but they're going to keep coming, right? That thoughts are like buses. They're going to keep coming. There's going to be another one. And I think, and for me, like fighting that, which is what I was doing, you know, in my PTSD kind of stage, was it was that fighting it was, um, was what was making me worse. It's like, imagine I went out onto a main road here and I put my hand up and says, no, you know, stop the traffic. It's going to cause a pileup. It's going to cause, you know, a backlog. It's, it's going to, it's, it's not helpful. So what I've learned um, through an idea, uh, it's called the three principles. I don't know if you've heard of that. Tell but, me. Um, but the three principles are, the, the idea is that we are always experiencing our thinking. And so it's like, um, I always think of it like a CNN show, you know, like the, the, the words can be going along the bottom of the screen like that, like a ticker tape. Mm -hmm. So the newscasters read in the news, but along the bottom, there's um, a ticker tape of information like, I don't know, the Dow Jones report and the, you know, the weather in Ohio and uh, baseball results, things that I'm not particularly interested in. And the, that's what our thoughts are like. They're continually going. And if I understand that that's how it works, then when something comes along that's a bit scary, like maybe there's something happened in Jerusalem, you're like, you know, I hope everybody's okay. Some thoughts are a bit sticky. But if I see that they're made of the same thing, I mean, some kind of spooky spiritual energy that's going through my mind that you know, I believe God put there. Um, and if I see them made of the same thing, whether it's baseball results or a memory of a trauma or what am I going to have for dinner, they're all made of thought. I've learned to not be so scared of them. And once I'm not scared of them, my thinking can slow down and then peace of mind can come in between those moments when your thinking slows down. And that's been my experience. Those, are, had, those are the three principles? Well, the three principles, um, the, a definition of them are mind, thought, and consciousness. Um, but the idea behind them is that we're always experiencing our thinking. We're always feeling our thinking. And the other idea is that we're all, we all have good mental health everybody even people sitting in a hospital like even someone with like 10 different diagnoses actually has good mental health it's just got covered up by some stinky thinking like for example just out of shot are my shabbos candlesticks and they're looking a bit dusty and dirty right now <laughs> i'm embarrassed, embarrassed to say but if i were to clean them there's the silver is still there right the silver is always there i don't believe god makes garbage so therefore we're not garbage. We, we can't be broken or damaged. 
it, we just get covered up sometimes by with stinky thinking. And then we take that thinking to be real. And then we feel that, that the thing, the thinking is going down, the quality of it's going down. And then we feel down. And that, that's why I say why we're feeling our thinking. Whereas if my, my level of consciousness can go up, the quality of my thinking goes up, I start feeling better. So are we talking about replacing? I mean, because I think this is such a this is such a phenomenal and we'll we'll get into hopefully also a little bit of self-esteem, but it's such a phenomenal concept that we are beset. I am beset. You know, you can, uh, you know, it's uh, with with doubt, with questions of could I have done it better? When could I have gone back and fixed things? You know, how is it going to be? And, and, you know, based on where things are now, how in the world is ever going to change? And when when you're you're saying this is it it's not just about like saying don't think that or it's not even about trying to replace that with other thoughts but it's starting by separating the thoughts and the the reality that just because i'm thinking this doesn't necessarily make it true right now is that is that sort of what you're saying yeah it's like um becoming an observer of the thoughts in fact one of the one of the little props i use if i can just reach it um a snow globe okay you can see this yeah snow globe so if I shake up a snow globe, like the, the glitter is running around and swirling around and it's, that's what it's like when my thinking is going very fast and I'm overthinking something and it doesn't have to be a huge trauma. It could be, you know, um, like a, a phone bill or, or, a, or a medical thing or like something, you know, like we can overthink things because trauma to one person is not trauma to another person. It depends, you know, like where, where your consciousness is at. And you're saying but those, but anything can trigger it, meaning that you get the phone bill and it's, it's more than you right. thought. And now right. you're, you're, yeah. experiencing, <laughs> right, you're experiencing the trauma from your, from your mother not, not loving you enough or whatever it might be. <laughs> right. So our thinking speeds up. But I just set the snow globe down on my table and the glitter settled on its own. I didn't have to do anything. And I think this is, I mean, to, to go back to your question about like Judaism fitting in with, with this idea is that I, I personally believe that... Um, that when God made human beings, he made it in such an incredible way that we have this self-healing system inside. Like we, ha- we can see it with our bodies. Like if you get cut finger or an infection, our bodies are, are designed to heal themselves as much as you know, possible. Um, and so um, I believe that the same can happen with your mind. If I keep analyzing and analyzing and, and, and redoing it and redoing it, um, then it's going to keep swirling around up here. It's going to get very hot, right? But if I let it settle, um, it will actually, the thought, like I said, thoughts are going to move. You are, it's actually very hard to hold on to a thought. You can keep repeating it and thinking it again, but it's actually quite hard to hold on to a thought. They naturally move. So like, like the glitter in the snow globe, it's going to settle. It's going to so, and that's important. That's important because even if you get thoughts of, um, thoughts, uh, you know, inspiring thoughts or, or moments of clarity to have mm-hmm. the, to have the presence of mind to tell yourself, I guess, at those points that, you know, I'm not going to have this all the time. And that this, that also will, will, will pass right. out. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what is the myth of, of self-esteem? Like how does self-esteem work and why, why did you, why did you speak about this? So when I first moved to California, being very British and very just like off the boat, like um, the, the cultural difference between, between London and, and California, especially, you know, back in the um, early 90s, um, I, I was kind of surprised to hear so many people talking about their low self-esteem. I mean, first of all, British people, we don't talk about, you know, our dirty laundry in public anyway, and we just suck it up and get on with it. Um, so I kept hearing these people talking about their low self-esteem and I, w- I was amazed 
because I'd never, I mean, forgive me, because I know you're from California, but I'd, I'd, I'd never met such a bunch of self-obsessed, self-possessed people in my life and self-assured and very confident talking about their low self-esteem. I'm like, that's not low self-esteem. And um, like I put a story in my book about, uh, I actually had a client that I, I met with there and she told me about how she talked about her low self-esteem at her NA meeting. And I was like, how many people go to this meeting? And she's like, maybe a couple of hundred. I'm like, what? You talked about your low self-esteem in front of 200 people? She's yeah, there's a microphone. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, I think you don't have low self-esteem. You just think you do. There's a big difference between thinking that I'm, I'm a piece of dirt and believing I'm a piece of dirt are two different things. Because when I started asking people questions about this low self-esteem, what I found was that they're really upset about was that people weren't treating them right. And I thought, hold on, if, if you thought you were a piece of dirt, you would, you wouldn't care. You would, if you would, ex you would expect that. that kind of treatment, right? You'd, you'd be, you'd expect that you wouldn't be surprised, but most of these people who, who were talking, this kind of language were upset that they didn't get the job that the boyfriend dumped them or like they were like shocked and like how dare they like so therefore you think you should be treated better that means you've got pretty good esteem if not maybe kind of high esteem right so that's why i started i said then to my friends one of these days i'm gonna write a book and it's gonna call it the myth of low self-esteem because these people probably have chutzpah like, i don't know about you know low self-esteem so when i when i came across the principles i i realized this idea that we're always feeling our thinking, it was the quality of thinking that's going up and down, not the quality of me. Like, like the silver in the candlesticks, that silver, that, that sunshine is always there, that pure neshama, whatever words you want to use, is always there. It can't be broken. Um, it doesn't need fixing. But depending on my level of consciousness, that's going to affect where my thinking is at. And that's what changes. And that can change over a lifetime. It can also change during the day. Like my level of consciousness, my quality of my thinking can go up and down. Like, you know, if you get an, an email or, you know, or, or someone doesn't call you back or whatever it is, it, it can change during the day also. So good. When we're thinking about quality of thinking, that's mm -hmm. going to be more, if I'm wanting to analyze the quality of my thoughts, it's going to be, how does it, how does it feel inside? Like, am I, mm -hmm. am I, you know, like whatever, they get like the pictures of all the faces, you know, and how are you feeling today like that? You know, if I, if I feel calm and relaxed, so I have good quality of thinking. And if I'm feeling stressed out and negative, I have bad quality of thinking. That's what, that's what you're saying? I would say yes, but the other way around. How so? The feelings come from the thoughts. Now, it might feel like a split second, but feelings come from thoughts. That's my, my understanding. Because... So explain that, explain that. The thought comes first. Okay. The thought comes first. And then, um, I mean, from a medical point of view, I, I actually, um, <clears throat> in, in uh, Israel, we have, um, obviously have Hatzala. I actually trained with the Hatzala psychotrauma unit. Like wow. Israel is one of the first um, countries in the world to have a psychotrauma unit, which is uh, incredible. What, what it is, is um, when, when people, um, call, well, here it's 1221 or in like 911 in America. Um, and you're requesting police, fire, or, um, or uh, ambulance. Here, we also have the option of um, a psychotrauma unit, which means we're trained to go to the accident or, God forbid, the terrorist attack 
and stabilize the witnesses who are possibly traumatized by seeing wow. something. It could be the soldier or the policeman who's, who's wow. dealing with it. Or imagine, um, imagine, God forbid, your baby's having CPR and the paramedics are working on your baby, the parents are going to be traumatized. You know, it, it, it could be a, a construction accident. It could, there's all kinds of situations. So, so now, now, what's interesting is that, is that the, I, I, what sounds like, I mean, uh, we, we have in the West at least come to this understanding, unfortunately, over, you know, many, many decades of people who, you know, of not diagnosing PTSD and all those kinds of things. But I think it's oftentimes it's, it, even, even in, I guess, even in the, in the West, like it's seen as a, you know, are you going to be okay post the event? You know, the, the veteran that returns from war. So if he has trouble integrating into his environment, then he would go seek out help. What it's sounding to me is that, is that there's sort of a, a understanding on your part that immediately upon the thing happening, someone has to be there to rectify or to start to work on, on the process. Is that, is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the first statistics I heard for, when I trained with Hatzala was that if someone gets immediate attention, immediate stabilization, fascinating. they're 80% right, less chance of having PTSD afterwards. Now, I've also learned that PTSD is not automatic. Like, I, I think therapy and, and that kind of like uh, urban legend kind of wants you to believe that, you know, you're going to be traumatized. It's not true. In fact, like the most horrific um, um, things can happen to people and depending on the different levels of consciousness, this person's going to be traumatized and this person's not. Um, in fact, I was, um, I, I use this as an example. This happened to me this summer. I had a friend visiting from New York who'd never been to Israel before. So I we, you know, did the tour of the old city. And I, you, I'm sure you've seen there's a, um, the ramparts walk. There's a, like the walls of the old city. There's a walk you can go around the, the, the wall. And I was... Um, my friend and I just bought tickets for, to do this, just a few shekels. And at the same time as us, there was a couple visiting from Europe and they bought their tickets and they went ahead of us. They went through the turnstile and there was a gate to enter into the, the, the walk. The gate to enter into the walk was padlocked. So they're now stuck between a padlock gate and a turnstile going the other way. And the, the husband was like, oh, this is weird. You know, like, what are we going to do now? And the woman was traumatized. She, like, I could see her through the railings. And so I noticed her eyes glass over and her eyes rolled back in her head and she sunk down to the ground. She, she like, was catatonic. And I, you know, thank God for my Hatzala training, like, rushed into action. And I put my hands through the railings and I grabbed hold of her arms and, and started doing some, like, the techniques that, that we, we use and trying to bring her back to the moment. Because in the moment, we're all okay. She didn't know that. So I, I was like helping her to come back to the moment because things like PTSD, you know, what, whatever labels you want to put on it, it's because we're not in the moment We're we're really reliving the thing that happened before or any kind of anxiety is about, you know, being thinking about what might happen, what did happen, what could happen. Whereas if you're in the moment, then, then th that, that is going to help you come back to some kind of sanity and peace because right here, right now, I'm okay. And even if the situation was ongoing, I, I have no idea what was going through her head. Maybe she thought she was going to be kidnapped or, you know, she'd like heard too many, you know, BBC reports of what terrible things happen in Israel, which actually don't. Um, but, um, so her experience and the man's experience were completely different. So that's why PTSD and trauma isn't automatic because here's two people in exactly the same situation and they're experiencing completely different things. So what I started by saying was like when, when you're 
anxious like that, it sets off all kinds of hormones and cortisol and glucose and stuff into your body. And that's what you're feeling. So the thought comes first and that gives, can give a, a physiological reaction. With her, it was extreme. With him, it was like, oh, whatever. And, and that's I, I think the, So I guess that the, the, the hidden part, I, and I guess that kind of becoming a master of your own mind is being able to pick up that hidden thing that then causes the, causes the anxiety. Because again, like you said, you know, there, there's very rarely a situation where the now is, you know, bad enough that we, we can't survive because if it's bad enough, we can't survive, we wouldn't survive. Um, so it's the ability to basically pick up um, and understand that this particular event is going to be sort of causing this rush of feelings in, in, in my body. I guess, is that, is that kind of the idea? Well, what I would say is, I'm so glad you said that because I used to think that was true. I used to think that the, you know, the, the, the phone bill or the boss humiliating me at work or, you know, the, the you know, like the, the, I don't know, they don't pay me enough or, or she didn't call me back or whatever it is. I used to, and then you, you hear or experience that and you're like, <gasps> you know, and then your heart starts beating faster. You can't breathe, you know, like your hands go sweaty, whatever it is, or even just like a, you know, it could be annoying. I used to think that was activated by the outside, but it's really not. It's my thoughts about what's happening. Right. That's right. what's, that's what's activating the anxious feelings. Right. And that's all patterned inside of you previously based on of a problem, sure, a variety of different experiences or responses to experiences and stuff like that. Well, it could be, but I, I, I would say that's above my pay grade to go there. Um, what, I would, what I would say is stay in the moment. Okay. I just had some bad news. My thoughts about the bad news are what are causing this current feeling. Because I think to, to go into like, that would be analyzing it, which would be like shaking up the snow globe again. <clears throat> so when I'm working with someone, I'm staying away from the analyzing. In fact, I try not to get into the content of what mm. the issue is. In fact, I, I was working with a woman recently, a client, and she, she'd clearly gone through some hor horrific um, traumatic experience. And it intuitively came to me to not ask her what that was. Mm. And so we talked for maybe almost two hours about how human experience happens, how the process happens of thoughts and about the ticker tape, the snow globe. I used all my little analogies and, you know, explained it. We, we had a really good chat. And then the next day she sent me two or three messages saying, you know what? Thank you so much for not asking me about what happened. She said, therapists and psychiatrists have been torturing me for 10 years getting me to relive it and relive it and journal it and storytell it and psychotrauma and, you know, like drama and, and that, you know, all the different like therapies out there that do these things. And she said, I slept well last night for the first time in years. Wow. Because her thinking had slowed down. And once she understood that that's what's happening, then you don't get so frightened of the thoughts because I, I work with people who have, like I said, terrible things have happened and they have flashbacks and nightmares and these things are real. But what they're learning is to not be frightened of it. And, not, and so the reaction is less. Therefore, there's less, you know, hormones and glucose and uh, adrenaline going into the body. Therefore, there's less reaction. And then it comes less often. And when it does, they're more prepared because they know it's going to pass. It's not that it's never going to happen again. You know, I, I know people who are, are still having flashbacks, but they're like, okay, hang on, it's going to pass. You know, like, and, and they're, they're, and, and with that understanding, it's getting less and less and they're getting freer and freer, which is amazing, you know, 
just to witness that in somebody is you know wonderful. Okay, so I have I have one more question. This is actually this is this is great and uh, a lot there, and I feel like there's a lot more we could we could do. I, I wanted to ask when it comes to one of the, the that that whole myth of self esteem seems to be really an, in, an inability to manage expectations um, mm -hmm. that you you think that the person should call you back, you think you should be at a different pay grade, whatever it might be. Um, right. One of the common thoughts that is out there in the realm of self-development and healing and all kinds of stuff is this concept of how do you change your life? Because there is the idea of learning to be at peace with the present, but there is also an idea that something has to change in order for you to have someone call you back or to get more money or whatever it might be. So how do you build expectations in your life without bringing in added anxiety? By seeing that an expectation is a thought. It's the same thing. Because that's why I don't get into the content so much with, with someone I'm working with somebody, um, whether it's, you know, a, a, a terrible trauma or it could be, you know, like a shallow bias problem. If you get into the content of it, it's, then we're, it's, a, it's an illusion. Because it's an illusion that, that, that job or that that you know money is the answer and what i found is when i recognize that it's the same stuff going along the same made of the same stuff like for example if you gave um three little kids play-doh you know this one's going to make a little person this one's going to make a flower and that one will make some kind of you know smudge and we'll say that's cute <laughs> and uh but they're, they're using the same raw material to make different things and it's the same with thought I get given this like neutral spiritual energy that get, goes in my head and I could be creative with it. I could be anxious with it. I could be daydreaming. I could be planning dinner. You know, it's, it's like, it's a raw material and expectations are just another thing I can do with that raw material of thought. And in my experience, what I've seen is once I understand that and my thinking slows down, then amazing things start to happen. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example. When, when I wrote my book, like I, this, one of the stories I told myself is that I'm not a writer. I mean, thank God I've, I've had very successful, you know, uh, other talents and career, you know, like, I've, I've, you know, like with the movie stuff was, was a wonderful, amazing experience. Um, but but I, never, I haven't written anything since I was in high school. So when I wrote this book, I put everything into it. I thought, you know, like they say, like everybody has one book. And I put everything into it, all my stories, and, and really worked hard on it. And I printed it out for a friend to read. She, was, she said, I'll read it over Shabbat. So like, just print it out and, and I can read it. So I said, fine. So I printed it out, took it to her house on a Thursday night. And, um, and then the next day, I woke up with the idea for three more books. Like, and then it was Shabbat. And, and, I, and my brain was going, boom, 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 with all these ideas. And like, I could write about this, and I could write about that. And like, and I couldn't write them down, which is really frustrating. But I, I mean, I'm, I've written them down now. And, um, but it was amazing because once I unleashed that idea, let go of that idea that I'm not a writer, I found out that maybe I am. You know, I think we, we tell ourselves stories about who we are or what we deserve or what it should be or what you think of me. Or what, and that's just a lot of very busy thinking. And once they let go, what, it's not even let going of it. Once I recognize that and understand that that's what it is, and it quietens down, then this intuition and wisdom and inspiration that's naturally there that everybody has starts to bubble up like a cork, you know, like bubbling up, you know, like in water. It, like it was held down by the stories and the lies and the, the, the expectations. I start seeing it for what it is and, 
you know, like, you know, I'm on the, like my third career now. <laughs> it's like, what's going to be next? <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Hada, please tell us a little bit more about how we can find out more about you, about your book, learn more about what you're doing. Thank you. Um, so the book is called The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. It's available on Amazon um, in Kindle and paperback. Um, my website is my name. It's hannahstudley.com, which is spelled C-H-A-N-A-S-T-U-D-L-E-Y.com. And through the website, you can contact me. There's my contact information is on there. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and review our podcast on iTunes, which will allow you to be the first ones to know when new episodes are updated. Also, please visit our website at ojchamber.com. And if you aren't yet a member, please make sure to sign up. Membership is free. Thank you so much and speak to you soon.